Hello and welcome to Contact Chai. Today's episode is from our Friday night Shabbat service, which was Rabbi Lizzie's final service until a well-deserved sabbatical rest. As a result, we won't be hearing much from Rabbi Lizzie in this feed for quite a while, but we know you'll love hearing more from Rabbi Stephen, guest droshers, and the Morning Minion crew. So... For one last time until 2024, if you can believe it, take it away, Rabbi. Seven years ago, this very week, in fact, this very Parsha, we were packed into this same space. Was anybody here that night? Anybody remember what was going on exactly seven years ago on the second weekend of November in 2016? Yeah, yeah, ring any bells? Uh, It was three days after Donald Trump had gotten elected. After, so everybody really needed to come to shul. (laughs) After a campaign rife, as we remember, with misogyny and racism and fear and dehumanization of immigrants and Muslims and women, to just name a few, and it was standing room only in here, and people were sitting on each other's laps on the floor. We were dazed. We didn't know what to do. We felt destabilized. But we did know that song and prayer and grounding ourselves in Torah and being in sacred space, in short, being part of a spiritual community would help. We knew it would help. It would get us to rise so that we could stand with whomever might need us to stand with them given whatever might lay ahead. And the months and years that ensued included some of our most proud moments as a community, I will say. We marched together for immigrant families and for black lives and against rampant Islamophobia that we were seeing. Mishkan sponsored three asylum-seeking immigrant families. And in the face of dehumanizing rhetoric from the highest office against so many minorities we felt our response had to be to create more humanity, which requires us to be more Jewish, to operate out of our Jewish souls and selves to create more humanity in the world. Hillel the sage in the Mishnah says, In a place where there is no humanity, try to be human. Okay, repeat after me. This is a really good one to know. B'makom... 
שאין אנשים. השתדל להיות איש. A guy whose head was full of racism and fear and dehumanization of immigrants, as well as infected by conspiracy theories about Jews, I wonder where he got and reinforced so many of those things, walked into the Tree of Life building in Pittsburgh, home to two synagogues, and killed 11 Jews praying on Shabbat morning. Five years ago this weekend. And... Folks came to our service the following week, dazed and destabilized and depressed, and we felt in our bones, some of us for the first time, that the road from dehumanizing talk to dehumanizing violence is actually short and inevitable, especially in a country where guns are so readily available, and especially, and that as Jews, we were no longer just important allies to targeted minorities in America, we were reminded we also were one. And so showing up to shul became an act of defiance. You know, what the terrorists want to do is terrorize us, make us abandon our values, our identity, our fear, out of fear and reactivity. And we knew that one way we as Jews could avenge the deaths of our brethren would be to do the exact opposite of being terrorized and afraid to be Jewish, rather to show up and be more Jewish, more joyfully Jewish, more lovingly Jewish, to show up, to love each other, to love the tradition, to convert to Judaism, as we had our biggest conversion class that year, as some of you may remember or maybe were part of, and not to be terrorized out of showing up in spaces that remind us of our humanity and the particular Jewishness of our humanity in this particular lifetime. That we were born into. And so here we are tonight, five years after that, seven years after the thing before, and with a lot that has happened in between in all of our lives and in the world. And I know some of us actually still haven't gotten past October 7th, like still just reeling from that day, let alone from everything that has happened in between. The last time We gathered here two weeks ago. So many of us, I think, were coming to terms with what felt like the moral whiplash of witnessing the most deadly and savage act of terrorism toward Jews anywhere in the world in 75 years. 1,300 people brutally murdered and 200 hostages taken with threats of public execution, unprecedented in modern history in the world awakening Jewish people everywhere to that age-old sense that sort of follows us around wherever of our precariousness in this world and including in the place where, in theory, Jews are supposed to be the most safe. And knowing how intimately bound up as Jews we have been with all of the other causes and minorities, we were waiting and hoping for that same solidarity for all of the friends in those spaces and then suddenly feeling so many people utterly alone and disappointed like the ground had dropped out from beneath our collected feet, incredulous that friends and people of conscience couldn't simply decry Hamas's brutal provocation without also saying somehow that those Jews had it coming. Do 
Do we too have it coming here in Chicago or wherever we live because we're Jewish? Or is it just Israeli civilians? And of course, there is context. Don't let anybody say there's no context to this. Of course there's context. But in moments of grief and trauma, it actually feels pretty simple. How hard is it to say without qualification that the murder of 1,300 Jewish people is a tragedy? And as time passed, we started to hear about the funerals and shivas of the dead, the stories of people still missing, captives, who they were. A colleague of mine and friend, Rabbi Amichai Laulavi, right before Shabbat, sent me a picture of his walk home in Tel Aviv. And there are a line of strollers down Rothschild Avenue, and in each stroller is a picture of a child who is being held captive in Gaza. Right now. A lot of the people who were in those kibbutzim on the Gaza border were people who stood for peace and coexistence and actually did humanitarian and relief work trying to bridge the divide between Israelis and Palestinians. There was one particular woman, Vivian Silber, who helped found an organization called Women Wage Peace. And she would drive sick Gazans to Israeli hospitals to get treatment. It didn't matter who they were. They were Jews. They were on the Israeli side of the border. They were targets. Any country attacked in the way that Hamas attacked Israel would respond militarily. And reasonable people can debate what that response should be. And reasonable Jews can debate what is done in our name in the defense of the Jewish state. And I know that in this room and in our community, there are people who are actively advocating for a ceasefire and actively advocating and collecting funds and resources to support the IDF in whatever way, come what may. And I deeply believe that folks in this community involved in activism, wherever they end up politically, are doing it from a place of hope for a better, safer future for everyone in that region. Truly. And we don't come to Shoal for lessons on military strategy. Lord knows I can't teach you that. We come here to be reminded how to live our particular Jewishness as we are humans, our particular humanity as Jews day after day in this painful world. In a place where there is no humanity, try to be human. And within a day of Israel's campaign to root out Hamas, the conversation moved from what had happened to us to Israel's response shutting off electricity and water and food and medicine and fuel to the two million people in Gaza, most of whom didn't vote for Hamas because they weren't born yet or they were too young to vote the last time there was an election there. 600 Gazans dead, 1,500, 3,000, 5,000, 7,000. Please don't debate the accuracy of the numbers because every single one of those people wasn't a number. They were a name. They had a family and hopes and dreams and a story like every one of our dead. And a story of their relationship with the land, just like every one of our dead. And I want to tell you that every time I have said Kaddish in the last three weeks, I have said it for my people, even though I don't know all of their names. And I have said it for Gazans, even though I don't know any one of their names. In a place where there is no humanity, try to be a person. 
This is such an audacious instruction from the sage Hillel. Try to be a man, try to be a person. Not even God could create humanity in a fully satisfactory way. God, whose character in the Torah reminds me kind of of a frustrated artist in the book of Genesis, especially in this section, tries creating humanity, and by the end of the Parsha, in the very first book of the Torah, the first Parsha, humanity has gone from the Garden of Eden to abject depravity, cruelty, oppression, and corruption, so much so that God regrets creating humanity and decides to destroy humanity and try again. And in, you know, and uh, begin again with a new prototype, Noah. <laughs> but as we read last week, the new human family that emerges from the ark after the flood is no better. And God muses to God's self in the Torah that God will never again send a flood to wipe out all of humanity because the devisings of human beings will never really change. And you would think at this point, God might just go, you know, jump to a new timeline, you know, or create another universe somewhere else with a new genre or species of beings in God's image instead of these people who are just morally flawed and committed to our own destruction as we appear to be. But God tries again. God tries again, not to reconstitute all of humanity, but to start a new family with a specific covenant. And so this week, we meet Avram, Abraham. And the Torah portion begins with God sending Avram off on a journey. And he doesn't know where he's going, but God promises to show him. And Avram has no children, but God promises that he will in fact have descendants as numerous as the stars and the grains of sand on the shore. And God promises to take him to a land that his descendants will inhabit for the rest of time if they can live in accordance with God's teachings. And the sages look at the Torah portion and wonder why on earth God chose Abraham to create this covenant with. Because it really doesn't say in the Torah, you know? Okay, God created Adam to be in God's image. God saved Noah because he was righteous and simple or righteous and innocent for his generation. We get clues. Abraham, we don't get any clues. God just tells him, as Judah didn't demonstrate earlier, but because I've been listening to him for a month and a half, and if you think I wasn't in tears bawling watching him do that in front of the school, you'd be wrong. Um, so the Midrash comes to fill in background about this Abraham guy who we know nothing about from the Torah. And many of the stories you might know about Abraham that people think come from the Torah actually are not in the Torah, they're in the Midrash. And so there's a really good one about how Abraham is this, you know, a kid who we might label as a spirited child or, um, or you know, somebody who's, who's less PC might just say like a bad kid because he's always breaking stuff. And specifically, he's always breaking the stuff his dad sells, which are idols. And so... He goes and he smashes all of his dad's idols and he sticks the baseball bat in the hand of the biggest idol. And then his dad comes home and says, Avram, what have you done? Abraham says, I don't do anything. He did it. And he points to the biggest idol. And his father says to him, Abraham, you know that 
these are just items of stone and wood and they don't have any power. And Avram, the little guy, says to his dad, let your ears hear what your mouth is saying. It's not a good line. Let your ears hear what your mouth is saying. And so they send him away. They send Abraham away and he finds himself wandering in the fields because he is a truth seeker looking for well, what really is in charge. I described another story earlier to you. And so he thinks, I'm going to worship the most powerful thing in nature. And he looks at the ground, the earth. I will worship the earth and all its vegetation. But then he realizes the vegetation can't grow without the sun. So he says, I will worship the sun. And he prostrates himself before the sun. But of course, then a cloud comes and covers up the sun. He goes, oh, well, the cloud is more powerful than the sun. I will worship the cloud. And then the wind moves the cloud away. And he says, oh my God, the wind is more powerful than the clouds. And suddenly he gets a sense that everything is actually connected in a deep, harmonious unity that he realizes is yud Hey vav Hey, God in English, all-encompassing being, you know, that verb in Hebrew that you really can't translate that the best approximation of a translation for is just the sound of a human breath. And Avram begins to preach this teaching that he has just had, this insight, this great enlightenment. <clears throat> and he goes around the ancient Near East teaching that instead of all of the families and tribes of the earth being pitted against one another, vying for land and dominance and supremacy, actually they're all connected to one another inextricably. And so when we behave with fairness and righteousness toward one another, it comes back around to us. And we see many examples in this week's Torah portion of him behaving with that consciousness with the local people who also live in the land. We actually see this week of the first negotiation of land for peace as Abraham and his nephew Lot sort of figure out who should live where with all their stuff. And it seems that Avram, unlike maybe anybody who has come before him in the Torah, is able to hold complexity and a larger picture in his head, holding not just short-term gains, but long-term goals. And perhaps Avram's ability to delay gratification and think not just strategically, but also with compassion, is why God chooses him to bless him with this covenant of love and also of land. And then finally, another angle. I like this one. Avram is referred to as Ha'ivri, Avram Ha'ivri, which means the one who crosses over. And specifically, <coughs> Rashi says, yes, who crossed over the Jordan River to get to the land of Canaan. But thousands of years of Jewish tradition have read this more expansively. He was willing to be a transgressor. He was willing to cross into new intellectual and spiritual territory. He was willing to explore and to stand on one side of the world while all the world stood on the other side. And he wouldn't be intimidated or ashamed. Over the past few weeks, I have really struggled with the question of what my job is in these times. What does it mean to be a rabbi? I actually went back and looked at my ordination certificate that hangs on my wall to see how it defines the thing that they told me I was. It's Elizabeth Chill Honey Rose Heidemann is ordained a rabbi. Big capital letters. It's got this beautiful Hebrew calligraphy at the top a teacher and sage in Israel to uphold and interpret the sacred traditions of the Jewish people. 17th of May, 2010, Los Angeles, California. 
And of course, a teacher in Sage in Israel that was signed in Los Angeles, California, is a clue that Israel is more than a place. It is a people, right? For the most part, I'm a rabbi here in Chicago. And I have to say, reading that, seeing that, reminding myself of what my job is, to uphold and interpret the sacred traditions of the Jewish people actually brought me to tears. I mean, as I said before, I've been crying all week. <laughs> but it was helpful for me to right-size my sense of what leadership looks like in these moments when it feels like it's impossible to do anything. A rabbi is not a fortune teller, which is good because I don't know the future. Though part of my job is to convince myself and all of you that it can be better than the past. A rabbi is not a military leader, which is good because I don't have any idea how Israel should respond to the crisis of this moment. Though I know that eventually it will require all the people between the river and the sea to see each other as human beings worthy of life and respect and dignity. A rabbi is not even a therapist, though I do feel like a lot of what I do is helping us create space to be vulnerable together and to push our comfort zones. A rabbi upholds and interprets the sacred tradition of the Jewish people because for 2,000 years, sacred traditions are what have kept us going and kept us strong and kept us human in a world that would love to destroy us. <laughs> in a place where there are no human beings, try to be a human being. As I step away from the community for the next three months and take a sabbatical, that is what I'm going to be working on practicing being a person outside of my role here. And as for what happens here while I'm gone, well, it will be much of the same thing that happens when I'm here. And that is owing to our fabulous staff and davening team, Rabbi Stephen, who's at a wedding this weekend, but isn't going anywhere for three months. Uh, <laughs> and so many of you who help create the human infrastructure of this community there will still be singing and praying and learning and meeting new people and deepening friendships and growing as Jews and as people who are becoming Jewish and people who love people who are Jewish. The world will keep turning and it will still probably feel like the end of days all the time because apparently that's just our reality now. And you'll keep gathering and showing up and hosting each other for dinner and studying Torah, and meeting for Morning Minion, and you'll take care of each other, and teach each other from the wisdom of your life, and how you understand and interpret our sacred traditions, because as it turns out, rabbis are not the only ones who can do that. And together, week after week, you'll remember how to rise, so that you can stand alongside our people in times of trouble, and alongside whoever needs us, come what may. Shabbat Shalom. I want to invite us to rise. We rise, humbly hearted, rise, won't be divided, rise, with spirit to guide us, Here in hope, in prayer.
Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening.